This is Impact, a look at the things that matter in Nevada. I'm Carrie Kaufman. Las Vegas' infection rate is over 20% per day. Just the right time to kick people out onto the streets, right? And the right time to raise temporary shelter for homeless people that they have forged for themselves. Then Evelyn Morales is a brave soul. She won a seat on the CCSD Board of Trustees. And she's hopeful about what she may be able to accomplish. And the League of Women Voters disbanded the Nevada chapter. We'll talk to Sandra Cosgrove about what happened. That's all on this week's episode of Impact. But first... I rang up uh, Guy's Hospital, which I know very well, because I've lived in London most of my grown-up life, and... uh, I said, what's this thing? You're doing the vaccination. They said, yes. And then they spent various times asking me questions about this and that. Not very interesting. And I said, yes, no, yes, no. And they said, we'll come at half past 12. Of course, I couldn't damn well find anywhere to park my car, so I was late. Um, anyway, I'm here now. And um, I got inside and they duly put me on a list. I went off and had a rather nasty lunch and then came back. And um, they were ready for me. And no, uh, it didn't hurt at all. I didn't know the needle had gone in until it had come out. I hope I aren't not going to have the bloody bug now. <laughs> I don't intend to have it because I've got granddaughters and I want to live a long time. That was Martin Kenyon, a London resident who woke up Thursday morning and thought, I'd like to get the COVID vaccine today. And then he went to the hospital and got one. Just like that. Like going to Walgreens for the flu shot. Mr. Kenyon is 91 years old. I love the fact that he is pissed off about parking, had a nasty lunch, and wants to live to a ripe old age so he can hang with his grandkids. I hope CNN checks in with him in 10 years. Meanwhile, reporting this week is that the Trump administration turned down an offer from Pfizer to be the first in line for the vaccine. In the U.S., states are competing against each other to get enough vaccine for medical professionals and first responders. Then they're setting up triage protocols to see who should be inoculated next. It's sort of like the Hunger Games, but with a virus. But you know, hey, England has that socialized medicine. We can't be like them. We hit 3,000 deaths this week, 3,000 deaths in a single day, for the first time since this virus has started. That's more than the single-day death toll for 9-11 and more than for Pearl Harbor. But these are different deaths. They don't shock us. They are not caused by bombs and fire. They happen quietly in rooms with loud machines and people stretched to the limit, people whom many folks in the U.S. just ignore. It is a particular American phenomenon, this it's not happening to me, so I don't believe it's true thing. It's gaslighting. It's what women have been saying for years, believe women. But the inability to see or trust beyond your own experience is, I think, really who we are. And it will sow the seeds of our demise. We're looking at 15.5% million cases in the U.S., and by next week, hell, perhaps today, we will tip over 300,000 deaths. Needlessly. In Nevada, our positivity rate is soaring, and the virus seems to be circling closer and closer to more and more people. We are running at 22 to 25 percent positivity every single day, and it keeps going up. Iowa, North Dakota, and South Dakota are still the hot spots. Despite that, many residents are against mask wearing. In Idaho this week, a health board had to cancel their meeting because protesters showed up outside their houses and were banging on doors. We're hopefully going to be talking to one of the people who's, who was part of that board next week. <laughs> 
Many people are losing their homes in Nevada as rental and homeowners assistance programs are running dry. On November 30th, many people who were already homeless had their makeshift encampment raised with no warning. The destruction of the homeless camp on East Owens Avenue was ordered by three government jurisdictions, Las Vegas, North Las Vegas, and the Nevada Department of Transportation. Michael Lyle reported on this uh, raising of the camp for the Nevada Current, and he joins us now. Michael, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Carrie. No warning. They had no warning. They just started raising the camp, right? So they, the, the city of Las Vegas confirmed back in September that they had pre- put no trespassing signs. However, many in the encampment didn't take those seriously. They actually misspelled the word trespassing, so it read <laughs> trespassing. Um, so many of the people in the encampment didn't take any, any of this seriously. And none of the recent notices actually had a date posted to, to inform them that this was going to be carried out on November 30th. So yes, when they woke up that morning or when they were woken up, I should say, when when the police came knocking and came through the encampment around 6, 615, mm. that was their first indication that this is actually happening and it's happening right now. Did people have time to get their stuff out? People were really flustered. I mean, imagine what you're like when you first wake up in the morning. Yes. I know I am some mornings I'm very confused and just it takes me a little bit to get my bearings and be like, oh yeah, I have to to get out of bed. And so that's kind of what we're seeing here. And so people were startled and they didn't have much time. The accounts kind of vary whether they had five minutes or 15 minutes. Nonetheless, a lot of people were in a dead sleep. And so they did not have a lot of notice. And so in the flustered and and they were flustered and in all the commotion, uh, they grabbed what they could, but many people left behind important documents, the things that you need to, to get off the streets, the exit homelessness, whether mm-hmm. that's your social security, your birth certificate, or any paperwork connected to, to social services, to job prospects. But I think some of the most emotional stories were people who lost sentimental vi- the, uh, items, such as the last photos of their parents, mm. or um, some man told me, uh, was speaking about losing a watch that his father gave him as his father is now deceased and things that you can't get back either. This camp has been there for a while. I drive by it every once in a while. Did they give a reason for, you know, like, I, I feel like they have nowhere else to go. Did the governmental entities give a reason for why they raised the camp? So when I've been reporting on the prospects of this raid for a while, and so the same reasonings that they've been giving me is health concerns, that both health and safety concerns, both the city of Las Vegas and the Department of Transportation have said that they need to do maintenance in the area. It is next to the Las Vegas wash. The North Las Vegas, most recently, they hadn't indicated this in previous reporting whatsoever, and so it's kind of surprised that uh, they had some police activity in the area, but they only cited two incidents of uh, potential, uh, I think the exact language they used was uh, battery with a uh, weapon connected to the encampment. But I'm always weary when I hear words connected, and so they mm-hmm. wouldn't go into any, any specifics. But despite health and safety concerns, this actually went against the guidelines for the Centers of Disease Control Prevention. They have, since March, been very specific. If there is nowhere else to go, please do not get rid of these encampments. If you do not have uh, indoors, not even the shelter space, if you do not have individual rooms because of the way that this virus spreads, like Mm -hmm. it's not just shelter space. Um, If you do not have individual rooms to place these, to place people, do not destroy these encampments. Um, But for some reason, even they did, they took into this, they said they took this into consideration and still went forward and, and decided to, to tear down this encampment. And so I remember a few months ago talking to John Pirro about this, and John was trying to get uh, people, he's a, he's a public defender, and he was trying to get people out of prison uh, who were there for nonviolent crimes or there awaiting bail. Yes. And um, and I said to him, okay, so where, where are these people going to go? They, they're going to be homeless. And his, his response was, they're safer being homeless than they are in prison. So I feel like, you know, that may have worked and they got people out of prison and then they were in fact homeless. And now 
where are they going to go that the, the, because these cities have raised their encampment? That is a good question, and that is the question that keeps me up at night. Uh, the last I went to a rally over the weekend to, to do some follow-up reporting, and people were gathering at the city of Las Vegas City Hall to talk about this. And many of the people, uh, some of the people who lived in that encampment, were there to kind of tell their stories, and many still were trying to determine where they wanted to to sleep that night. Um, shelters are at not at full capacity. Not that that's the best environment to be in this virus. Right. Um, you need to be, again, in individual rooms. Uh, the city has constantly plugged the courtyard, but that's an outdoor atmosphere. I don't know about you, but I don't like sleeping outdoors. Um, and it's also, you sleep on mats. There's not a lot of opportunity for social distancing. And so people are trying to figure out where to sleep. Like that, that's a good question. I don't know where, the, where people are going. I, think they play it by ear. I mean, they're also running against the fact that in the last year, the city of Las Vegas has passed two ordinances mm -hmm. that actually regulate sleeping outdoors and camping outdoors. And so they do have some steep hurdles on trying to find safe space where they can socially distance, but also not be harassed by police and not uh, not get any citation or potential arrest. So you have been covering this for a while. Uh, the has the city of Las Vegas, has the county, has anybody done anything to try to solve this situation, the structural issues that cause homelessness to begin with? Yes. Uh, so the Clark County has designated, last year they designated some marijuana business license fee money to target some of the subpopulations within homelessness. They think they targeted about $12 million to go to uh, and they allocate it in different portions to cover things like uh, medically fragile homeless, to cover uh, homeless youth. So there has been some efforts to, to tackle this, but um, in the 2019 legislative session, the city of Las Vegas actually did propose uh, raising uh, the SOAR surcharge fee and also raising the real property uh, tax to garner about $20 million, but that bill was completely gutted, gutted. And as the legislator does, it turned it into a uh, study bill, essentially. Of and course. so it actually uh, asks the city, Clark County service providers to come together and look at a plan to, um, to actually solve this, look at the funding mechanisms to actually make systemic changes. And they did formulate that plan. They did look at some of the solutions. They did find that um, for rapid rehousing services, for instance, like there was, it lacked, it need $31 million to actually be where the budget should be. Um, and so they formulated that plan of how much, uh, where to look at, look at to find the money to solve these structural issues. But initially this plan says, okay, legislator, now it's your turn to, to look at what you need to do, which is kind of funny. It's kind of a little bit of back and forth. Yes, um, they're kicking the ball to each other. Exactly. And so they also looked at some suggestions about imposing taxes and fees on professional sporting events, which aren't really taking place right now, imposing taxes and fees on new housing developments or, or construction. Um, so they're looking at efforts, but then it's kind of going back up to the legislator to ultimately decide this again. And so, yes, they were looking at things, but not at the speed I think that service providers would like mm -hmm. and not with any confidence that I think a lot of people would like. The people at the homeless, uh, at this, this Owens location, they actually had tents. They had huts that had been provided uh, by a nonprofit. Talk to me about that. Yeah. So, uh, Food Not Bombs and a few other nonprofits, they had noticed some of the, the they'd gone into the encampment. They do a lot of street outreach um, and they were kind of assessing the needs of the encampment and decided since I think late summer, if I, if I'm, if I believe I'm correct, incorrect, I'm not sure, but uh, I believe it was around late summer that they decided to construct little mini huts. They did about 26 of them, 25 that had been allocated to people living in the encampment. They weren't able to give the 26 because the encampment was destroyed by then. But yeah, they decided to take it upon themselves to create these little structures for people just to have a place to stay. Uh, one 
one resident I talked to over the weekend, uh, Katie Johnson, she used actually used that more for storage and for food. And she actually had a tent that she slept in because she found it a little bit more uh, spacious. But mm. the, the bigger picture here is um, people were able to set up a designated spot. That's another issue that we're seeing from people that are living on the streets. They don't often... They, have, they accumulate a lot of things that they need to survive. But if you have no place to store that, you can't go out to look for jobs. You can't go out to service providers. There's a lot of things that limit you when you have shopping carts full of your materials. And so building these, uh, these structures actually allowed them to have a safe space, let alone in a pandemic. It actually provided some barriers for you to uh, socially distance, which is what we're all supposed to be doing to pr mm -hmm. protect ourselves from the virus. So you've also been reporting about prisons. People have been let out of prisons because of COVID, but what's going on now? Well, unfortunately, no one's been let out of Nevada prisons because mm. of COVID. We, uh, the Crime and Justice Institute just released a report uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it kind of did a state-by-state -state analysis looking at what action has been taken on the state and local levels. And uh, the only action that we had in Nevada is on a local level back in April. Clark a County. Judge, yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, the judge asked Clark County to depopulate by about 10%, which is around 300 people. And it was uh, nonviolent uh, offenses. And uh, so that happened. I'm not sure how the population has grown back then, has grown since then, or if the population has grown since then. Mm. But that was the only local effort. There has been an ongoing struggle to actually get response to, um, to, to deal with the rising cases within the Nevada Department of Correction. A couple of weeks ago, uh, people were alarmed to see the Warm Springs Correctional Center up in Northern Nevada. It, has a population of about 520 people. And right now about 460 people have tested positive wow. for COVID-19. And it happened in a very quick reporting cycle. It was, um, family members had uh, stormed, I guess virtually stormed uh, a legislative hearing uh, talking about, uh, just actually during public comment, they were trying to raise awareness and get interactions so are the best thing that they can do is speak during public comment sometimes. And so they were raising awareness to try to say, hey, we, we think that something's happening, but no one was really listening. And it jumped so quickly the next day, all of a sudden it was 93 people had tested positive. And mm. by the end of next week, it was 40, uh, 460 people were, were positive. And so, and that was just one facility. Um, right now, um, at the end of October, there was about 188 total cases within Nevada Department of Correction. It is about 1,600 uh, right now. And so it, it jumps very, very, very quickly. And it, uh, those family members of the incarcerated are extremely worried. Um, them, along with the ACLU, the Pro Progressive Leadership Alliance of Nevada, some other nonprofits and criminal and, and, and law groups have been asking the governor and the officials to look at early release, compassionate release. Mm -hmm. uh, the early release they're talking to find, to, to look at the inmates who with, are within six months of uh, their sentence expiring. Their sentence are coming to end in about six months that are there for nonviolent offenses. So things like drug crimes or property crimes. Um, and so far there hasn't been a response from Governor Sisolak or the state really on on the on, on doing anything like that. And that has been considered in, in a lot of other states. Kentucky has done something, California has, has, has looked at that as well. And so this isn't like a foreign concept that mm. other other states are doing this. And so that's kind of where we're at right now. Um, this is a lot of safety concerns with the Nevada Department of Corrections. Um, I didn't report on today, but I, I, I'd listened to a sentencing commission meeting yesterday and the Nevada Independent did report on this, but I was a little bit alarmed because the, the director, Charles Daniels, mentioned that there had been five deaths, but that was news to everyone that has been reporting on this because the state dashboard that reports all the COVID uh, cases at uh, state facilities mm -hmm. does not record that. And it hasn't recorded that at all. And so it was the first time that reporters, first time that a lot of people had heard about inmate deaths. And so it just begs a lot of questions, including what else is not being reported, so. 
I wonder about that dashboard. Michael Lyle is a reporter with the Nevada Current. He talked to us today about the ra- uh, raising of the homeless encampment downtown and also a little bit about what's going on in Nevada's prisons. Michael, we're going to check in with you as the legislative process gears up to see what we can expect. Thank you for being here today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This is Impact. I'm Carrie Kaufman. The new year will bring three new people to the Clark County School Board of Trustees. One of them is Evelyn Garcia Morales, who will be taking over the seat currently held by Linda Young in District C. Evelyn is the executive director of the Fulfillment Fund, which helps students at four Clark County schools navigate to college and then helps them have a chance for success once they get there. She'll talk about that a little bit uh, as we go along, but I want to welcome you to this show. I'm, I, I think I want to welcome you to the Board of Trustees, uh, but my first question is, what in the world ever made you want to run for this office? Carrie, thank you so much for having me on today, and thank you to uh, everybody who's listening. When I look into the eyes of our students in Clark County, I see myself. Mm-hmm. And when I was in high school um, and in my early college days, I lived with my mom near um, the corner of Donna and Carrie near North Las Vegas. We lived in low-income housing, um, and we depended on food banks and other social services to, to get by. And I can tell you that I carry these experiences very close to my heart. This is why, the, why I do this work in college access, why I want our students to be successful. And, and as the executive director of this fulfillment fund, I can tell you that I've been looking at, I, it has made me more curious about what's happening to our students um, earlier on in high school, in middle school, in elementary, and then looking even deeper into my community where I currently live in, District C, where I will be here hopefully for a very long time, mm-hmm. um, and start to identify what are some patterns uh, when it comes to academic achievement? What's happening at the school, on the ground, and what's preventing our students from, from leaving school, eventually at high school, um, ready to be, uh, to pursue what it is that they choose to pursue, whether it's trade school certificate programs, the workforce, college, uh, you know, we, students have an incredible uh, oppor- a group, just tons of opportunities, and for me, I'm really lucky that I ran into the right people here in our school district when I graduated from Mojave and I found um, UNLV and I went to UNLV. I want what's, I want, I want our students to be successful and, and um, it starts with making sure that they have strong academic background. So what are you seeing on the ground that needs to be made better? Uh, there's several things that I see. One, when I see our students leaving high school, uh, particularly through the fulfillment fund in our programs, I see that they're, they're having a difficult time um, when they enter into college, if they choose college, for example, or trade school certificate programs, they're entering remedial courses in English and math. And mm-hmm. we know that remediation costs students money out of pocket because financial aid um, does not, or the FAFSA does not uh, cover those resources of that, that uh, class. And it's also costing taxpayers money. A- and um, I started to ask myself, well, why is it that our students are leaving high school without the basic skills that they need, whether they go to college or not? They need to be able to read and do math um, and, and do some of the basic fundamentals that we're all expected to do in the workforce, right, and or in college. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when I look even deeper into some of the scores here of our community at large, I look at, um, for example, the, um, the Nevada um, star rating system, and I look deeper into those numbers, and I say, okay, what's happening at these schools, at, at schools, at our schools, that um, uh, when it comes to student achievement data, I know student achievement data is is a, a piece of the of the data puzzle, mm-hmm. but it made me curious, and I'm honestly very curious to learn more about in those schools that have students that either have high transiency or uh, perhaps um, are not achieving uh, tests test scores or not achieving academically, uh, how many of those educators are part-time subs Ah, or long-term subs? Right. Um, How many of them uh, are tenured educators? 
Uh, what's the diversity look like in those schools? Those are the type of questions that I want to ask because I know how all of that funnels into academic achievement. Okay, so uh, when you get the answers to that question, to those questions, then what do you do? I think it's the start of a conversation. Uh, there, there are many, many questions and lots of layers to academic achievement, right? But we know that our students are brilliant. We know our students are absolutely brilliant, um, and we have some inc- we have incredible educators and talent in our district mm. um, who are who are creating who are making miracles happen, mm-hmm. especially right now. Um, the, the what we do with this data and what we do to analyze it, not only uh, hopefully by school, but also by district and within the Clark County School District, is that we start to make decisions based on policy and, uh, and creating policies and, and prioritizing um, how these, how these um, prior, making, hopefully making some priorities in, in our um, uh, decision-making process, right? So our board, what I would love our board to be able to do, and I, I hope to be a contributor to this, mm-hmm. is to bring up conversations about academic, academic achievement regularly during board meetings. Mm-hmm. That's not always happening. <laughs> okay, that's which gets me to my next question, right? Like, I mean, I, I sort of implied this in my first question: Why in the world would you want to join this board? But, um, but the the board seems to talk an awful lot about what they should be talking about, rather than actually getting anything done. Uh, so, have you talked to some members of the board? Uh, do you have ideas about how to get in? And, and, and maybe reorient a little bit so that we're actually talking about student achievement every single time you guys meet? I am really grateful to have the opportunity to speak, to have spoken to most of the board members, uh, both incoming and outgoing uh, and current board members. And uh, I'm, I'm learning a lot. You know, I, I, no one steps into these type of roles because they think that they're really easy. Mm. You know that they're going to be a challenge and um, you are willing to do whatever it takes to step into that challenge. And, and hopefully everything that I do in, in my life, I'm really grateful to have it, many experiences. I always want to leave the experience, leave it better than it, I, than I experienced it. Mm-hmm. So uh, my, I'm hoping that my skills and uh, I'm confident that my skills in um, bridge, in strategy and bridge building and uh, communication and organizational change will help add value to the board. Uh, you know, my lens is on what's best for our students academically, what's best for our students um, and our educators uh, at large uh, and all of our talent in the district. I, I know how integral each piece is to the system. So why did I do this? I see myself in our students I want our students to be successful. And I know that in order for us to be, as a community, we, we have to be willing to say, uh, throw our stake in the ground time and time again. And I, and I wanna be able to contribute to positively throwing our stick down into the ground and saying, this is, uh, if we value this, this piece of education in our community, then we have to be willing to, to put our weight into it. And um, that's, that's what I'm hoping to, to do. So I um, want to talk about the reorganization a little bit. Uh, it was, you know, it's AB 469. That's what they keep calling it, right? It's from 2017. Uh, or no, 2015, actually. And, um, and it, it has created autonomous schools, essentially. They're not completely autonomous. There is a lot of uh, push and pull right now between the district and between schools, uh, it is no secret that the principals' unions and JARA don't particularly like each other that much. Uh, so where do you come down on reorganization and giving schools more power and more control of their money uh, and the district's uh, view that it should be more centralized? I can tell you that I, I have not formed a, a formal opinion on this particular piece, I still have a lot to learn in this area, and I'm I'm eager to learn. I have not. Uh, I've met with some groups, but I still have not met with all the groups that I'd like to meet. So I'm I'm still. Uh, one thing that you'll know for sure about me is that I will collect as much information as I possibly can to make an educated decision. Mm-hmm. But what I can tell you is, when I um, think about re- uh, reorganization and and autonomy, I think of autonomy being a really great driver for innovation and creativity. 
um, only only if there to some degree are parameters or expectations, right? I think about it, the, the private sector, when there is autonomy that's given to um, a project, um, think of Tesla or think of Apple, think of <laughs> some of the most innovative projects that, we, that we've now have been able to, to uh, you know, benefit from as a society. Right, right. They're, um, you know, they were given, they weren't given a endless amount of um, resources and an endless amount of time. There were expectations that were set and said, this is what's expected out of you, you know, um, make it, make it work. And, and this is, you know, from, there was a sandbox that was built to mm-hmm. some degree, right? So um, that's how I, I see um, the value of, of autonomy and schools being that it could give, um, you know, the uh, SOTs and the um, principals and the, the, the planning uh, groups this incredible amount of creativity and uh, resources to do what it is that they need for their community. At the same time, I wonder uh, if there is uh, that tension exists because perhaps it's not um, equal or uh, expectations are not clear and or support is not clear. Uh, The Fulfillment Fund works with public schools, every school is public, but public schools and charter schools, quote unquote. You are on the board of a charter school. Charter schools uh, I see charter schools as bringing innovation to the table. Um, they, there, are, there are definitely, I think, also legitimate criticisms of char- charter schools. We're not here to debate that, right? But what, from that angle, do you think that CCSD can learn from charters? I'm really grateful that you brought up this conversation, Carrie, because um, there's a lot that we can all learn from each other when it comes to, in the education space. And we've almost created these silos um, out of because of the competition to some degree exists there, mm-hmm. right? And competition can be both a, something really good. Again, in the private sector, we see this competition can be good. It can also be damaging. But when we're talking about one goal, our students and educating them and giving them the best, um, not, uh, the best chance possible for a future, I um, can't help but to think about my experiences in, on the school board of Nevada Prep. Um, uh, I joined because I, I knew that I didn't know enough about charter schools. And within the, the first year that we were open, we became um, um, a rising star school, which was significant because our kids came in um, fifth grade, fifth graders coming in, in, rising sixth graders, came in with very uh, poor reading skills. Uh, we had to catch them up very, very quickly. And we did that. We were able to do that within a year. Um, and so when you talk about the innovations, what innovations can we learn from school boards, excuse me, from charter schools, we see how they have uh, many of the schools, the charter schools in our community have mastered um, and or have learned a lot when it comes to parent engagement. Mm. You know, parent engagement is a critical component of any student's education. And we know this, we talk a lot about this, uh, CCSD educators, professionals were like, hey, we, we gotta engage our parents, but no one is really talking about the how, um, or even providing, um, or even reaching out to some of these schools who's saying, hey, what are you all doing? And I shouldn't say not, nobody is, but um, that conversation isn't elevated. We're not willing to say, hey, this is less about the system and more about the people, the people who are within the system, what can we learn from this system? So parent engagement, I think that we've, um, some charter schools because of the way that it's, they're, they're set up, um, do not get uh, all of the DSA money that, uh, for example, mm-hmm. public schools receive. So they've learned to be a little leaner and meaner when it comes to their resources and also the way that they fundraise, right? Um, our public schools, um, are great support systems of the social fabric of our community. So they provide transportation, right? Not all charter schools do that. Mm-hmm. They provide uh, uh, schools um, like CCSD School District. Um, they've figured out a way to bring in partners and community organizations to help uh, uplift the um, some of the, the neediest communities that we have in, in our back backyards. So um, again, lots of innovation on both ends, but we really have are not talking to each other. Mm-hmm. And I think there's, there's a, a really valuable need for our families. If we really are trying to improve our system and education here in the state of Nevada, in Clark County specifically, in District C, in our backyards, we have to be willing to, to say, all right, this is, this is not about 
the Evelyn show. This is not about the CCSD show. This is about what's right for our students. Evelyn Garcia Morales is uh, going to be taking over Linda Young's seat in District C for the CCSD Board of Trustees. She starts in January. Uh, Evelyn, I want to extend an invitation uh, to talk to you a few months into your tenure, uh, just to see how what, what what your expectations were and how they're being fulfilled. Carrie, thank you for the invitation. I would love to accept it and. Please know that I'm happy to to be a, uh, to continue to learn from you and and your audience when it comes to um, the work that's needed in our community, especially in the space of education. I'm going to bring in Sandra Cosgrove, who is on this show quite a bit. I talk to her quite a bit, and I introduce her as a professor at a CSN, and also as the president of the Nevada League of Women Voters. Well, she's not going to be president of the Nevada League of Women Voters anymore. In fact, the Nevada League of Women Voters has disbanded because of a dispute with the National League of Women Voters. Uh, Sandra, welcome. I wish that I was talking to you about something else, uh, but uh, talk to me about what's going on. Sure. Thanks for having me on. Um, and as a historian, I have to say this stuff happens. Hmm. So, you know, I don't see it as being something extraordinary, especially in women's history. There's oftentimes schisms and acrimony. But, I mean, the gist of what happened started back when the National League, um, back in October of 2019, decided they were going to do a 50-state redistricting initiative mm -hmm. uh, to get rid of gerrymandering. Which we have talked and about on this show, but go ahead. We've, mentioned, we've talked about that. And each state uh, decided would be the best path, best path forward to do that. And so here in Nevada, we decided to amend our constitution to establish an independent redistricting commission. And the National League signed off on that. And then I was kind of on my own as far as putting together a coalition, getting funding. The National League did provide some funding, but I got the bulk of it from other organizations. We hired the attorney. Um, we quickly ran into pushback from the Democrats, which was not something that was a surprise because mm -hmm. they're in control here. Mm -hmm. So obviously they have a vested interest. Um, but I, I did over the course of the time when we filed our ballot initiative till this last August, noticed that red states were being treated differently than blue states as far as resources and attention. And that when you've got a Democratic attorney uh, appealing a case that they had won, which is a weird thing to do, but then writing in their legal briefs that our ballot question should be stopped because the Democrats had earned the right to draw friendly maps. And I just have to say for the record, there is no legal right to draw friendly maps. The courts do not recognize that. Hmm. That there should have been at least some behind the scenes conversations with somebody in the DNC to ask why there was a difference between what was being said in red states and then what was being said in blue state of Nevada or purple state of Nevada. Okay, so I'm going to stop you there for a second because we have talked about this issue. When you say the Democrats won, but but they, they sort of, they don't feel like they won. Let's, let's talk about that a little bit. We filed a ballot initiative and a ballot initiative has two parts. It has the body of the text, that's the actual amendment. And if you're going to sue on that, you can sue on um, that it's violating somebody's rights. So you have to point to a constitutional right, or you have to say it violates the single subject rule. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be really careful how you write your amendments here. And that's why you need to put a lot of money into getting a good attorney that understands how to make sure you don't uh, commit those violations. The second part is what's called the description of effect. That is a 200 word summary that just basically says, here's what this initiative will do. When we were challenged the first time, it was only on the description of effect. It was not on the body of the amendment. They did not challenge our amendment. So when they say that they have disagreements with the amendment itself, they never sued us on the amendment. They never said what their disagreement was. And I would have to assume is because they didn't think they could win in court based on that argument. Interesting. So you mentioned getting a good attorney who can write these things so that they are legal, these, these, these petitions, these ballot petitions that we vote on. And I should also mention that because of COVID, you didn't get enough signatures to put this on the ballot. Uh, okay. But the, what was the issue that, that National had with the way that you were conducting this? So uh, it was in August that the Nevada Supreme Court 
came down with a ruling on the second lawsuit against us, which was actually an appeal. Mm -hmm. And so what happened in that first lawsuit is they said, we don't agree with your summary of your ballot question. And we said, okay, help us make it better. Rewrite it. And the judge said, okay, they said you can rewrite it, rewrite it. And then the attorney said, no, we don't want to rewrite it. And the judge said, no, that's why you're here. If they're allowing you to rewrite it, rewrite it. And he said, no. So the judge then asked our attorney to look at the complaint and to rewrite our description of effect to meet the complaint. We did. We submitted that to the judge and the judge said to the opposing attorney, is this okay? And the opposing attorney said, no. And the judge said, well, why? And he wouldn't answer. So the judge says, okay, I say this meets your complaint. I'm signing off. This becomes the new description of effect. You guys go, go about your, your ways and get your ballot petition out there. Mm-hmm. So technically they won. Mm-hmm. We said, great, you win. They then appealed a case they won. They appealed the case they won to the Nevada Supreme Court. And this is what they said. The judge didn't have any right to accept the rewritten uh, description of effect that was written by us. <laughs> and so they had refused to rewrite our description of effect refused to accept our rewrite and then complained because the judge said well we have to move forward we're rewriting it based on your complaint they need to be able to move forward and so our attorney said first of all that's bogus because you won the the case second of all in the Nevada revised statute it actually says once a description of effect has been amended it shall not be challenged again Hmm. And so we petitioned the Nevada Supreme Court to dismiss it, saying, first of all, they won the case. Second of all, we have this Nevada revised statute saying you can't challenge the description effect again. And for some reason, the Nevada Supreme Court said, no, we want to go ahead and brief this. So then we had to pay a lot of money and go through months and months of litigation with the Nevada Supreme Court. And this is where we started seeing the briefs being written by Mr. Kevin Benson, and he's the attorney on the other side, where he was writing things like their ballot question should be struck down because the Democrats have earned the right to draw friendly maps. And I don't so all understand that's where there. that comes from. Uh, I, I don't like we, we there are some states that have separate uh, redistricting commissions. California is one of them. Uh, and there are definitely states like Wisconsin, where if you win the um, uh, the majority in the legislature, they're redrawing the maps. They redrew drew the maps so that now uh, the majority of voters don't actually have their will in Wisconsin. Uh, but I don't understand where where they think they have the right to do it. it that this they isn't just a political maneuver. They don't, because what the Nevada Supreme Court ruled in August when they finally got around to ruling on our case is that they said, first of all, the judge did have a right to rewrite the description of effect. Second of all, you don't have a right to draw friendly maps and and dismiss the case as frivolous. So uh, so now let's get back to the league being disbanded. And I have to say that you put this on Facebook and I responded and I also wrote a letter to the league. Uh, but let's get back to the league being disbanded. It was because you worked with a Republican group to make this uh, initiative happen. Is that true? So what they said is they, I, I, I co-authored and then authored two op-eds after the Nevada Supreme Court ruling and basically said that the Democrats were wrong for filing a frivolous lawsuit against us. And as we're seeing, um, as the Trump campaign is filing frivolous lawsuits, the Democrats think that's a wrong thing to do. Mm. And so I pointed out, you can't, you can't be hypocritical in this way. You can't be against um, you know, gerrymandering in the red states, but for gerrymandering in the blue states. You need to have one position and stick with that position. So I was in trouble for pointing that out, for writing um, op-eds that pointed that out. And then I was told that I didn't work in the right coalition and that there had been an anonymous accusation that I was biased against communities of color at some point when we were writing the ballot question. Mm. And I tried to explain that here, when you write a ballot question, you basically hire an attorney and you give them parameters for what you want to do. And then, as I said before, you make sure that attorney writes that amendment very carefully so that you don't get a legal challenge. Mm. And when I tried to explain to league that that's the process, that's a very legal process at the beginning. And then when, if the amendment passes, we do enabling legislation 
And that's where we get to write all the administrative rules. Do we want to have um, a diversity policy for how we get people on there? You know, do we want to have make sure there's geographic regions that are represented? That all happens in the legislature. And that's where you have to be very careful and very, very aware of creating a very diverse coalition. But they didn't want to listen to me about that and just kept saying that I was biased against communities of color. Interesting. Do you know who lodged this complaint? They refused to tell me. So they told you that they were going to disband the league. What was the ultimatum you were given? So when they brought this up, um, that I had written these these op-eds criticizing the Democrats, that I had, my coalition was wrong, my board and I, we sat down and we wrote a rebuttal. We showed how what my op-eds aligned with the uh, nonpartisan policy that's on the league's website. Um, I talked about the process we had gone through and who we had talked to when we were writing the ballot initiative and trying to get ready to get it signed. Um, there was some stuff they were worried that I was friends with Barbara Sagafsky and that was going to impact the Democrats lawsuit against her. Hmm. It's a small state. We're all friends with each other. Mm -hmm. And we wrote it up and it was about a five page rebuttal and we sent it to them and they ignored it. Did not respond at all. And instead, they then uh, sent us a letter with sanctions against me that from this point forward, anything I said as the league president would have to be vetted through the board. And that would take up to 72 hours. I don't even know how that works. Mm. If I'm somebody, like if you called me on the phone and asked me for a quote on something, I can't say it's going to take 72 hours. And they also said that from now on, if I'm going to work on redistricting, I can only work with the organizers from the League of Women Voters US and only with their pre-approved set of coalition partners which do not include Republican groups like NPRI <laughs> and some other groups who I've worked with before in the past on many different coalitions. Right. Um, but the thing that got to me the most, well, there was two things. I don't like being accused of being racist without mm. being able to talk to whoever's had the problem. And they just kept making the accusation and saying it was anonymous. But the other thing is I'm also on the board of the ACLU and I am a very strong supporter of the First Amendment. And so for them to say that they were going to censor all my speech and they were going to censor my associations and they were going to censor my writing, I'm not going to put up with that. You have, I mean, you were working with Red Rock Strategies, right? This is a Democratic majority state right now. So, uh, and, and there were things that didn't happen in 2019 legislative session because Sisolak wanted to make sure that we still had a majority in the 2021 session uh, so that uh, Democrats could be in charge of redistricting. That was pretty clear in yep. 2019. So there were, there were, you know, education money wasn't raised because they were maneuvering for this. So that, that's why it makes sense to me to have an independent commission. But what I find interesting is that this is the league's position. And they still, they just didn't like who you were working with. Um, have you worked with Democratic groups before? Oh, when, uh, when we did the automatic voter registration uh, ballot question, I worked with a Democratic consultant and Democratic groups and no one said anything and wrote an op-ed about that. Going back to the 2015 legislative session where it's like every other bill was either guns on campus or voter ID, mm. we took the Republicans to task for voter ID and I wrote op-eds about that. And apparently that what, I, I didn't commit an offense until I criticized Democrats. So where do you think this is coming from? Um, is it, I'm going to put my historian hat on. So it's, it's a well-known uh, term when you're looking at um, regulatory agencies and, and the industry that they regulate. It's called capturing. So if, you write a, if you're in a company and you've got like the EPA regulating you, maybe you want to have a friendly administration put one of your board members in as the head of the EPA. Therefore, you've captured the agency that's regulating you. So on the surface, it looks like it's very independent, but it's not. Mm. And so I'm just worried right now that whoever is trying to manipulate the league in a way so that there's very robust redistricting reform efforts taking place in red states and then not so much in blue states. This is just your worry? Do this you is have... just my hypothesis as a historian. But I, I was looking at like Virginia, where the Democrats opposed their amendment to do a redistricting commission, they ended up having to create an independent uh, group called um, One Virginia in order to be able to kind of battle it out. In Oregon, which is a blue state, the Democrats sued all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court 
to stop that redistricting ballot question. And I never really saw anything coming out for league press releases or statements that were pointing out that our the Democrats were partnering with us in red states and yet fighting tooth and nail against us in blue states. So the League of uh, Women Voters in Nevada is disbanded. And I have read that your board members uh, here in Nevada support that. So, um, but you do a lot of good work. So now what? So we figure if the League of Women Voters is not the right vehicle to continue our work, we just need a new vehicle. And so when we, we started realizing that the National League was going to dig its heels in and it was going to be, you know, kind of their way or the highway and they weren't going to uh, respond to anything that we said back to them, um, we went ahead and filed for a new nonprofit called Vote Nevada. And we've applied for 5013C status and we're waiting on that. Um, and we're just going to all move over to Vote Nevada and keep doing what we have been doing. But this time it's going to be state specific. There's going to be no national organization, no outsiders trying to, trying to kind of tell us how to do things. Mm -hmm. And I want it to, I also want it to be less restrictive. So not only say to people, here's the, like, we're going to do redistricting reform, you know, mental health, um, and maybe open primaries, you know, maybe those are the top three things we want to support in the next legislative session. So any of you who, who support that come work with us. But I also want to say, because I work with young people all the time and I see and I hear the frustration they have where they're told you can't do that, to say to them, if you have a thing you want to work on, come on over. It doesn't have to be something we've endorsed. We can provide space for you and help you learn how to do research, help you do some organizing, help you put up a Facebook page. But come over and at least use our platform as a space where you can ask questions and get help, whether we want to endorse what they're proposing or not. So how are you going to fund this? Does the league, the National League give you funding that you're going to have to make up for? Um, we've gotten really good at doing things for free. <laughs> so, I mean, if you have a Zoom account um, and a WordPress blog, and that's about it. That's all you need. Sandra Cosgrove is a uh, regular on this show, uh, and she is also a professor at CSN, but she is not in fact, the president of the League of Women Voters of Nevada, because the League of Women Voters of Nevada doesn't exist anymore. And uh, I am really sorry that you had to deal with this, Sandra, but I'm glad you're moving forward. Moving forward. And my new title, once we're up and completely running, is going to be executive director of Vote Nevada. This week's episode of Impact has come and gone, thanks to Michael Lyle for talking to us about homelessness and prisons in COVID Nevada, and to Evelyn Garcia Morales for giving us an entrance interview before she takes her CCSD trustee seat. Also thanks to Sandra Cosgrove, a woman whom I admire greatly and who is the epitome of integrity. Our intro music is Foster the People's Life on the Nickel, and you're listening right now to Vampire Weekend's Oxford Comma. We're going to be back next week talking to teachers and talking more about COVID and looking forward to the legislative session. I'm Carrie Kaufman. Thank you for listening to Impact. <laughs>